gospel to Revelation chapter 19. And we're looking at this wonderful subject for those who are faithful members of the Lord's church. And I hope you do understand really how blessed that you are to be a member of a Bible-believing church. And don't ever take the privilege of being in a good church very lightly because there's lots of people across our country that have no good churches to attend where churches, uh, preachers don't use the Bible any longer and people really aren't getting the truth of God's Word. So it's really a privilege to uh, be a member of a Bible-believing church, one that still uses the Bible. And the New Testament is filled with references to the church. In fact, it is the most important teaching that we find in the New Testament, second only to a person's individual salvation, is the teaching that we have in the Bible about the church. And yet, for the great importance of it, for the emphasis that's put upon it by Christ and the apostles, the doctrine of the church is really largely misunderstood. It's often treated lightly, and quite frankly, it is taught wrongly. And the church is so precious to Christ that uh, the Scripture uses the metaphor of marriage to describe it. And symbolism uh, of the church goes all the way back to the to the Garden of Eden when God made a wife for Adam. He gave him Eve, who was his helper. And Adam said when he received Eve that this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Eve was taken out of the flesh of Adam, and that produced a bond between them and a love between them that's deeper than any other kind of human love. And that same thought is carried over into the New Testament. Uh, Paul wrote that a man never hates his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it. And then he says that that is like the Lord and his church. The church is called the body of Christ, and Christ loves it and he cherishes it. Uh, In our text tonight, we're looking again at the time that Christ takes his bride. He's the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. And there is this great celebration. There's a marriage feast that takes place just before the righteous king comes to begin his kingdom upon the earth. Now, if you'll look at verse number 7 of Revelation chapter 19, the Scripture says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, if you'll look there again, the scripture says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So we're looking here at a scene that takes place in heaven when it's time for Christ to come to establish his kingdom on the earth. And I've mentioned many times before that the history of the world is moving towards this event. And when that day comes, there will be such anticipation in heaven that it will be uncontrollable. The singing, the praising, the hallelujahs rise to a deafening roar so that the scripture describes it as a a voice of mighty thunder. So heaven celebrates this. And it is a very important feature of the coming kingdom of Christ uh, when the king comes to take his bride. 
And that is the subject that's occupied us now for three weeks. It's going to be a 1,000-year celebration. And so I think it's good for us to take a little bit of time to talk about it. I want to mention to you uh, the previous points that we've spoke about so far. Of course, one of the problems that you have in these multi-part messages is that they're, they get long and long and long, and there is so much, so much to review that it takes a lot of time. We don't have time to introduce any new material. So I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on what we talked about previously, and if you're seriously behind us in the study and you want to know what brought us this far, we have copies of the messages that are available. But we began the study by talking about the contract for marriage. And this is God's plan from eternity eternity past, which is an everlasting covenant between the Father and the Son in which the Son would be given a bride and that he would be exalted and glorified through his bride. Secondly, we talked about the choice in the marriage, and that's another part of this eternal plan. According to the Scriptures, the decision for the persons who would be in this bride was made before the world was made. Uh, Creation has a purpose and a design to it, and it's not just that there would be a physical world where there would be animals and plants and human beings, but God had a design uh, for the world that it would glorify Christ. All things are created for him, and man was created in God's image with the intent that he would reflect the glory of God. Thirdly, we talked about the church in the marriage. Uh, We can easily identify the bridegroom. I think there is no question that we're speaking of Christ. But there are some who have trouble identifying the bride. And I really don't think it should be a problem because we have scriptures like Ephesians chapter 5 that I mentioned a moment ago where human marriage and uh, the church are put in juxtaposition to one another. And we also have this scripture where Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth and he says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so I believe that the connections here are unmistakable. The intention is unmistakable. But despite that, you do have people who want to make Israel a part of the church. And then there are some who teach uh, universal invisible church doctrine that places all in the bride that are saved during the church age. And uh, this would mean people even if they're not a part of the visible church. I definitely believe that we're speaking here of the visible church, which is the only kind that there is, and out of that visible church, it must be those who are not just members of the church, not just having your name on a church roll, but people that are faithful to the Lord in their service in the church. Fourthly, we talked about the call to the marriage. Verse number 9 says, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, these must be distinct from the bride because you don't invite the bride to her own wedding. And so these ones that are called are all saved invitees. All of them are covered under the blood of Christ because they've trusted him as Savior, but not all of them are a part of the bride. And that would include God's people that come from the Old Testament period. It includes people that are saved during this New Testament time of the church, and yet they haven't become a part of the visible church And then it also includes those that are saved after the rapture, those that are saved during the time of tribulation. They're all a part of the bride, or not not all of those, I should say, are part of the bride, but they are invitees to the wedding. So they're blessed, according to the Word of God. Uh, They have a part in the celebration. But the distinctions here are very clearly made. 
people that are saved in different eras are not a part of the bride, except they are members of the visible church. But that doesn't mean that Christ's love for any person who's received him as Savior is inferior. Uh, It just means that they occupy a different position in God's heavenly program. So that catches us up with the previous parts. And so now we're going to look at the fifth feature of this study, which is the chastity in the marriage. Now, we notice the description of the bride in verses 7 and 8. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, I want you to notice two very important statements that are made here. His wife hath made herself ready and... To her it was granted that she should be arrayed. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding, and I'm sure everybody here has been to a wedding, you know all about the fuss that a bride makes when she's getting ready for her big day. The clothes, the dress, and everything has to be just right. And we've uh, coined a word for the neurotic perfectionist bride. That word is bridezilla. Well, this, this bride is not a bridezilla, but she is very concerned that she presents herself well and that she is dressed appropriately. Now, in Scripture, uh, clothes are often emblematic of righteousness. Now, here the Scripture calls the clothing of the bride the righteousness of the saints. Now, we're going to look at that for just a moment because God's people are, are clothed in righteousness in two different ways. Now, in the Bible times, there were two garments that were usually worn. One was an inner garment, and you had an outer garment. For instance, a person would have two coats. Uh, One coat was worn close to the body, like we would think of underwear, sort of, and then you had the uh, other coat that was put on top of it. So you have two different types of clothing that are emblematic of righteousness, and appropriately, we do have two different types of righteousness that are taught in the Bible. So we're going to look at these two. And the first one is represented by the inner garment that a person would wear. And this is what we call positional righteousness. Positional righteousness is what we know as the imputed righteousness of Christ that's received in justification. Now, I've taught a lot on this subject, so I think that you know it well. But it's what the Bible calls the righteousness of faith and also the righteousness of God. Paul states it that way when he was writing to the Romans and he was using that classic example of Abraham's faith. And he says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And he's speaking there of the righteousness that is received by faith in Christ. And he means when we believe in Christ that we are justified from our sins and we receive Christ's righteousness. It's also called the righteousness of God. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul states it this way, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. So this is positional righteousness because the position of the one who has this is that he is no longer condemned by his sins. Judicially, he's been declared not guilty of sin, and that's because his sins have been transferred to Christ. 
The scripture says that Christ bore our sins on the cross. So our sins are transferred to him. And at the same time that that happens, Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. And we call that righteousness an alien righteousness. That means that it's not our own. It comes from outside of us. It's given to us from another source. And so it's called an alien righteousness. And then I might also add that we're not talking here about the inherent righteousness of God. Righteousness is one of God's attribute, but the, uh, attributes, but one of the, inher- uh, the inherent righteousness of God is something that's not transferable to us. But rather we're talking here about the righteousness that Christ earned in this life. He kept God's law perfectly, and he earned righteousness that could be transferred to us. So what Christ did was to perform perfectly what God requires of every one of us. Jesus said in Matthew five forty-eight, Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven, which is perfect. And that's a command from God. But how are we going to do it? How, how are we going to keep a command to be perfect? We can't. And so there's only one way that will work, and it's pretty much the theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount because Jesus said you have to have a superior righteousness. It must be better than anything that you can earn for yourself. And that superior righteousness is Christ righteousness which he earned by keeping God's law perfectly. And so what God does is he allows that righteousness to be transferred to the believer by faith. So that's why you see the Bible constantly pressing this issue of faith. It's faith in something. It's not just faith because you have faith. It's faith in what Christ has done, faith in him as a person and that righteousness of Christ that he earned while living his life here. And that's transferred to us. And it can't be done in any other way. So faith is always the key to receiving Christ's righteousness. Now, interestingly, this righteousness is referred to as a garment. And in Scripture, it's always referred to as a white garment. In other words, it's like clothes that that cover up our spiritual nakedness. We find this in Revelation 3, verse number 5, where Jesus says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his, out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In the 18th verse of that chapter, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. Revelation 4, verse 4, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Chapter 7, verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And then in this chapter, the 14th verse, Revelation 19, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And there, all of these references of white garments refer to the righteousness of Christ. The Old Testament has a beautiful representation of this in the tabernacle. And from our study of the tabernacle, you know that every part of it is a graphic representation of Christ. And the tabernacle was enclosed by a white linen fence that speaks of the righteousness of Christ. Now, we have this picture of the white linen fence, and that fence surrounds the entire tabernacle, and there's a courtyard inside of that. And you couldn't get into it. You couldn't get into the tabernacle unless you went through that fence 
And that was a picture that it's impossible to get to God without going through the righteousness of Christ. Now, that fence is one representation of righteousness and holiness. And the Word of God says it's a holiness by which we cannot, if we don't have it, we can't see God. But we also see a picture of that in clothing. The righteousness of Christ is also pictured in the clothing of the priest. In Exodus chapter 28, it says, And for Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles, and bonnets shalt thou make for them for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and shalt anoint them, and consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. From the loins even unto the thighs they shall reach. So that white linen, that clothing, is emblematic of the righteousness of Christ. It represents his purity, his innocence, his sinlessness. And there is no one that can come to God without that purity. So positionally, when you receive Christ as Savior, you stand in God's presence pure and clean, having the righteousness of Christ. Now, if you want to know why you need a Savior, that is really the sum total of it. You, you can't see God without sin, you can't, or with sin. You can't come to him with sin. The Holy God's not going to permit sin to come into his presence. And so we have to have that covered with this cloak, these clothes of righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that's the inner garment, and that's essential for the bride to wear. And Christ clothes us with that by faith. So when we trust him, he clothes us with this garment of righteousness. Now, all of that's important. It is very, very important. The bride must have that garment. But she also has another one. In verse number 7, it says, His wife hath made herself ready. Now, that gives us another concept of righteousness, which is the outer garment that's worn. And this is what we call practical righteousness. Practical righteousness is the good deeds of God's people. Now, we don't want to be confused about this. This doesn't mean that good deeds save you. We've already taken care of that in the positional righteousness with what Christ does through us by faith. And you don't make yourself acceptable to God by good works that you do. Now, the Scriptures very clearly teach us that the only reason that we are accepted by God is because we have been accepted in the Beloved. And that means Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And so we are accepted by God because of Christ. And if not for him, we don't have any hope. And so the righteousness that we're talking about here is of a different kind. It's enabled because we have the first kind. We have to have that positional righteousness, but it's not the same type of righteousness. Practical righteousness is the character of a Christian. And Paul expresses that in Colossians chapter 3. He says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. 
Now there we're talking about the garments of practical righteousness. So these are all the good deeds that characterize the Christian life. And so the faithful bride of Christ arrays herself with this garment. She makes herself ready by faithfully following the bridegroom's command. And so what we're really talking about here is things like when the Scripture says that we are to walk by faith, when it says that we are to live by faith, and when it says things like that we have to escape the corruption of our flesh. Now, as a Christian, you're dressed in that practical righteousness by living in the Holy Spirit and having the Holy Spirit fill your life with the riches of Christ. Now, going back to that Old Testament symbol of the white clothing of the priest, it also represents the duty of the priest to be holy. So his white clothes are really a testimony that he's unspotted from the world. This is the way he is supposed to live. James wrote, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Peter speaks of the same subject in Second Peter 3, where he's talking about the end of the world and what God is going to do when he purges the world by fire. Uh, I used this scripture this morning, but he's speaking here about events that happen in the second coming of Christ. And he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And there, of course you understand that conversation means the manner of, a, of your life, the way that you live your life. And he says it should be in godliness. So here we're talking about practical righteousness. The bride shows her chastity by being undefiled with the pollution of the world. Now, she has a positional righteousness in Christ, and because of that, she recognizes that she should have this practical righteousness also. She notices that she has this exalted position as the bride, and so what she never wants to do, she never wants to bring reproach upon her husband's name. And so we would call her the virtuous woman. She, she proves her position by righteous living, by good deeds, and she makes herself ready with those. Now, I don't know how that we could read this and how we could think about this without seeing how important it is that we live as holy people. We are the church of the living God. And if you've been made to glorify God, how could you any longer can, uh, live in sin? You know, how can those that are dead to sin live any longer therein? That's a question that the Apostle Paul asked. And his point was, it doesn't make any sense for someone who's been raised out of spiritual death into spiritual life to continue to walk as though he was dead. So practical righteousness is what we have been designed for. In other scriptures, you'll find it spoken of like this, being conformed to the image of Christ. It's the very same thing. The practical righteousness that we're fitted with through living holy lives for the Lord. And so we are to continue in that spiritual life for him. And so what we're doing when we do is we're showing in an outward fashion this wonderful work that God has done in our heart. So the people can't see the inner righteousness. Nobody knows what's happened to you inwardly. The only way they can know it is by what they see outwardly. When you put on the practical righteousness, then they know that you have that inward righteousness. And yet for all of that... For all the many times that we talk about this, for all the times that the Bible has talked about it, 
We still find people in the church that like to flirt with nasty sin. Now, I don't know how to put that in any other way, but some people are just plain nasty. You know, it used to be that if you were a member of the Lord's church, what you would want to do, if you had sin in your life, you'd want to keep that a secret. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. You ought to confess your sins. But people had enough sense about this that if they're a part of a church and some, they have, there's expectations that are there, that people are not going to outwardly show their sins. They do their best to cover them up. I don't understand it, but that doesn't seem the way it is anymore. Now we have a public forum for sin. And you know what I'm going to say, don't you? We call it Facebook. And there we can put everything that we do right there for everybody to see, post it all out there, all the evil things we do, all the evil talk that we have. Folks, let me tell you this. Three and four-letter words are evil talk. And God's people ought not to be involved in it. And you certainly ought not to put it out on a page somewhere for everybody in the church to see it. How many times do I have to say it? And people just don't seem to get this through their heads. Uh, I mean, we, we, don't, we are the chaste virgin of Jesus Christ. We're a holy people. Now, you look at this scripture, and it says, His wife had made herself ready. And it says she's arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. And you need to ask yourself, where do I fit in that picture? Now, the bridegroom intends to choose his wife among those that are undefiled. And put it simply, he doesn't want a nasty bride. What man wants a nasty bride? You know, Paul said that Christ gave himself for the church. And you know why he did it? He says that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, as we think about that righteousness of the saints and the, and the beautiful wedding garment that she wears, when is it that she receives this garment? Now, the wedding garment is not worn while we're in this life. This is not the time to wear this garment. Now, we're, we're earning it, and we're working towards that, but now is not the time that we wear it. We have the evidence of it, but there's a particular time in the future when the bride actually makes herself ready for the marriage feast and, and for this marriage. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Now the treasures that Jesus is talking about there is equivalent to the same thing we're speaking of here. He's speaking of the righteousness of the saints. So we're accumulating treasures in heaven by the good things that we do for the Lord, by living for him, and then we receive the reward of those good deeds and those treasures at a later time. Now, when do we receive those? Well, thirdly, we have the Bema's beautiful garments. And this is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And so the time to receive this wedding garment is at the judgment seat of Christ. That's when the bride is made ready. She receives the rewards for her faithful service that's given to her then, and so she is actually decked out with all of these rewards. Now, the word for judgment seat in 2 Corinthians 5 is the Greek word bema, B-E-M-A. Now, you'll notice here that all that we've been discussing occurs prior to the millennial reign. 
this is preparation for Christ's reign upon the earth. And, and since it's before, it must mean that the judgment at which we receive these beautiful garments must be before Jesus comes to set up his kingdom upon the earth. Now, all Christians, all Christians are going to be judged at that time, not for their sins. Christians won't be judged for their sins because all of our sins have been judged at the cross. Christ took our sins to the cross, and the, and the judgment against it was all taken care of there. And as a consequence of what happened at the cross, all those who believe have been freed from condemnation. And so when Christians stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're not going to be judged for sins. It's a time of reward. This is the time that God evaluates what we've done in this life. Now, quite frankly, Paul says that some of the works of Christians will be burned up. Now, if you'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for just a moment, we'll see here that Paul tells the church at Corinth that our works must be built upon the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, our works have to originate with him. Christ has to be the focus of those works. So he writes to the church about the judgment of Christians in 1 Corinthians 3. Starting in verse 11, he says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now there Paul splits this up between two different types of works. He says some are gold and silver and precious stones. And those represent the good works of Christians that are done to glorify God. Now, those works are enduring. And so when this fire comes to try those works, those works will remain. They're actually works that are done by Holy Spirit activity in our lives. And those are things, like we read a moment ago, forgiveness and kindness and charity. Those are the kinds of works that are going to survive the fire when it comes. Then he has this other category, and he calls them wood, hay, and stubble. And those represent works that are done for the wrong reason. For example, you come to church and you sing a song or you teach a class or it might even be that you preach a sermon. But when you do it, you're more interested in, in showing your talent or giving displays of your knowledge or showing people what great oratorical skills that you have. And if you do that for men's applause, those are the kinds of works that are going to be burned up because those things aren't done to glorify God. Even though they might be good in themselves, they're not good towards God because you've done it to glorify yourself. So Paul says the day will declare it. And what day is he speaking of? He's speaking of the time that we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And so that's when the rewards are given and that's when the bride is made ready. Now the timing of all of that is very significant. We know the timing of the great white throne judgment. Now that's the judgment of the lost. We go over to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, it occurs after the millennial reign. It's after Satan have, and the Antichrist have been cast into hell. It's after the, the bodies of men and women that have not trusted Christ are raised from their graves. The last judgment is the last act when Christ throws all rejectors into the everlasting lake of fire. But the judgment that we're speaking of here occurs before the millennial reign. 
And so that means that you have a period of at least 1,000 years that separate these two. Now, if you want to know why I don't believe that anybody who goes into the millennial reign of Christ without already being a Christian will not be saved. In other words, no people are going to be saved during the millennial reign of Christ. This is why I believe it. Because this judgment occurs before the millennial reign, and we don't have another judgment anywhere in Scripture where it tells us that people that are saved after that time will be judged. It says we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So lost men that go into the millennial kingdom lost come out of the millennial kingdom lost. Now, the Bama seat is when the bride receives those beautiful garments. So all these treasures that have been stored up in heaven by righteous deeds done upon the earth are given to her, and she makes herself ready for this beautiful wedding ceremony to the king of righteousness. Now, I intended originally that we would reach the final two points of the sermon tonight, but we're not going to be able to do that without a marathon session. So I'm, I'm going to save the last two points, and we're going to look at those at the first part of the year, and we're going to look at those last two points in conjunction with our Lord's Supper observance. And it really, really does make a, an interesting backdrop for that Lord's Supper uh, observance. So five weeks, I don't think that's really too long to cover something that's going to last for a 1,000 years. Then we've also got verse number 10 that we want to consider, and uh, there's some great doctrine that's in that portion too. We need to talk that, about that. So we're going to come back to this one more time in, in two weeks, and we're going to wrap it up. There are really some great thoughts here. The Apostle Paul said, Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And I promise you that if you'll think about things like this, think about what Christ is going to do at the judgment seat. Think about how that you're going to be arrayed in the beautiful garments that God has prepared for us through these, the holiness of your life. That's going to make a change in you. You think about those kinds of things, and it ought to make a change in the way that you live your life. Now, I don't think that there's going to be a bride in heaven that's going to be running away from her husband. She's not going to be trying to hide from him like many Christians are trying to do today, I think. I think there are going to be a lot of people, a lot of Christians, that they're going to be surprised in one sense of the word when Jesus comes back, and they're going to be caught doing some things they ought not to be doing. Now, this bride is not one that's afraid that she's going to be caught. She has her eye on the bridegroom. She wants to be pure for him. And I can promise you this, he expects no less from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this time. And Lord, we love to speak to your people and, and just have the opportunity to explain such things as this. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a holy people. We know that you'll bless this church if we are. And to the degree that we want to try to hide our sins or even parade our sins when we shouldn't do it, then you're going to subtract blessings from us. And we don't want that to happen to us. So we want a church that will grow. We want people to be saved. We want your people to really have holiness in their lives. So help us, Lord, to do that. Bless in this time that we sing tonight. And, Lord, we just give you the praise for all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.